The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, welcome, everybody. Uh, what I'd like to talk about tonight is think globally, act locally. A phrase you've probably heard many times, but <clears throat> probably not in a Dharma talk. So tonight I'm going to try to relate it to the Dharma. And a subtitle might be Small Things with Great Love. I'll say more about that. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Bodhisattva. Uh, probably you've all heard of the being, the Bodhisattva. No? But the Bodhisattva is a term that isn't used as much in our practice here as it is in the Mahayana tradition, but it is still used. And it refers to someone who is very advanced, but is willing to put off their own enlightenment until everyone can be enlightened together. <clears throat> Somebody the other day uh, referred to a bodhisattva as a saint. That's kind of the idea, someone that serves. And, of course, that's a pretty big challenge, isn't it, to save everyone. I'll read you one version of the actual Bodhisattva vow. When I was practicing Zen, we repeated this vow every, every time we sat. Suffering beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them all. Attachment is inexhaustible. I vow to release it all. The gates to truth are numberless. I vow to master them all. The ways of awakening are supreme. I vow to realize them all. So it's a pretty, a pretty ambitious vow. Goal, perhaps. So what are we to make of this? How do we understand this very large um, idea? And I see it as inspiration, as an attitude that we can adopt. Of course, no one of us can liberate all beings. <clears throat> um, no one of us can put an end to all attachment. But it's a very lovely ideal, isn't it? To be willing to aspire to saving everyone, or to be willing to postpone one's own enlightenment until all beings can be awakened together. So if we see it as an attitude or an inspiration, it's, it's a, very, a very large 
inspiration. And it needs expression on a very local or a much smaller scale. So I'm reminded of one of my favorite songs from John Denver. In it, he said, there's nothing that I want that I don't want for everyone. And I thought that was so lovely. That's the bodhisattva ideal. There's nothing that I want that I don't want for everyone. It's not you know, me first, or me only, or my ego, or what I need or want, but what is good for everyone. The reality is, of course, we're all in this life together. We're all interdependent. None of us, none of us can go it alone. We like to think so, particularly in this culture. We think we're very independent and very individual and very important. But the truth is that we're all totally interdependent. And everything arises dependent on everything else. Everything arises together. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter-are. <laughs> None of us is so separate as we think we are. And it's interesting that modern physics is saying the same thing. Nothing arises on its own. Everything arises from causes and conditions. So, we aspire to awaken together. There's the ideal of compassion. And again, in the Mahayana tradition, Avalokiteshvara is the embodiment of compassion, uh, generally considered um, androgynous, sometimes referred to as a male, but basically androgynous. And in Theravada, in our practice, we have Kuan Yin from the Chinese tradition, who is the female embodiment of compassion. And both Kuan Yin and Avalokiteshvara are said to have a thousand arms to hold the suffering of the world. Again, a very, um, a very lofty, a very large ideal to be able to hold all of the suffering of the world. And we all know that there is enormous suffering in the world, isn't there? We are asked in our practice to recognize that suffering, to not turn away from it. Sometimes people 
sometimes other traditions, <laughs> uh, want to gloss over the suffering and talk about how everything is wonderful and, um, you know, everything um, can be positive if only we will look at it that way. In Buddhist tradition, we recognize that there is enormous suffering. That's not all there is. There's also enormous joy, enormous wonderful things. But there is enormous suffering. And we're asked to recognize that and to open our hearts through our practice to be able to hold it all. Now, not any one of us can hold it all, of course. But again, it's the attitude of accepting, recognizing the totality of the suffering in the world. And then for each of us to do what we can. Not to be overwhelmed by the suffering, which sometimes people are, and then that becomes uh, a way for people to give up or don't do anything. In our practice, we're asked, yes, recognize all the suffering in the world and then do what each one of us can do. Do what's right in front of us, we say. Someone once said to me, um, in terms of what we do, it is never enough. And for me, that was so freeing. (laughs) It's like, no matter what I do, it'll never be enough. So I just do what I do. I was saying that to someone recently, and they said they had just the opposite reaction, that if it was never enough, then why do it? Um, Fortunately for me, as I say, it was very freeing. I didn't have to worry about doing everything. It would never be enough. So I just do what I can do. Do, as we say, what's right in front of you. And of course, there is plenty right in front of us. So we we never have to worry about what we can do because there's plenty all the time. Mother Teresa said, and has been quoted many times, we can't do great things. We can only do small things with great love. We can only do small things with great love. Margaret Mead said, never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. She said, in fact, it's the only way it ever has. That it's always a small group of people. So we are not to be, um, you know, afraid or daunted by an individual action or a small group of actions. Small things become great things. 
So this reading, small changes. But we have been ripening to a greater ease, learning to accept that all hungers cannot be fed, that saving the world may be a matter of sowing a seed, not overturning a tyrant, that we do what we can. So we don't have to do great things. We don't have to overturn tyrants. We can sow a seed. Um, And uh, this particular woman talks about when she was young, she was very aware of the suffering of the world. And her mom would knit small uh, caps for infants. And she would say to her, you know, this won't change the world, but one little baby's head will be warm. And that's, that's the idea, that we don't have to save everybody. We can do what's right in front of us. And if knitting a, a baby's hat is what we do, that's, that's amazing. That's incredible. Another, if compassion never ceases to flow, then that is meditation. Meditation is not just sitting in the lotus position with eyes closed. Real meditation exists in the midst of dynamic activity or life. Change must start in our hearts. People who practice spiritual disciplines have the most enduring impact on life because of the inward work that we do. It makes us more effective in any situation. We are most effective when we can return goodwill for ill will and show kindness to those who would harm us. When we look for a common solution without anger or a desire for retaliation and act on principles of care and concern without a need for reciprocation. There's a Buddhist story that maybe you've heard about the starfish, a person walking on the beach sees several starfish that have, for some reason, become beached. And he starts throwing the starfish back in the water. And somebody comes along and says, what are you doing? You know, there's hundreds of them. You can't save them all. And he said, no, but I can save this one. (laughs) Again, you know, doing what's right in front of us, as small as it may seem. And in our practice, it's important that everything we do, every step we take, be done with integrity. 
The end never justifies the means. The means must be with integrity. The means must be within our practice. So we don't tell a little white lie because that will do such and such. We meet every situation with integrity and let go of the outcome because we don't know. We don't know what the outcome will be. We don't know what our actions will bring. But we do each action as lovingly and with as much integrity as we can and then allow the results to happen. Thich Nhat Hanh has a book called uh, Peace is Every Step and he talks about we don't create peace, we are peace. And it's the same idea that um, every step we take must be peaceful. Then peace happens. But we can't take shortcuts. We can't do things that are not peaceful and expect peace to happen. So remembering that, that every step is important. And we, we are considering what is best for everyone. Not just what is best for me or my family or my friends or my group or this sangha or whatever, but what is good for everyone. Sometimes that's a very un-American attitude. <laughs> In our culture so often, it seems, you know, we're encouraged, do what's best for you. And in the Dharma, it's just the opposite. What is best for everyone, not just me? So a very large issue these days for me, it's a large issue and it's something that I'm very aware of and concerned about, is homelessness. Um, It breaks my heart sometimes when I close my door at night and know that I have a warm house and a warm bed. And there are so many people sleeping out in tents, in the rain, in the cold. Um, It just seems to me that shouldn't be happening in this wealthy area of the country. But of course, it's in many ways an overwhelming situation, at least overwhelming in terms of any one of us. And again, that can be for for some people then uh, to develop an attitude of, oh well, what can I do? Anything I do, you know, will hardly touch the problem. But again, that's not true. Every single thing we do can be helpful. So in the larger picture, again, globally, it might be refugees. There are so many um, refugees or people in the world that are without a home, without a physical home, without a country home. And again, that can be overwhelming. What can any one of us do? But if we think about what's right in front of us, uh, 
What can we do right here, right now? In terms of the homeless, there are many things we can do. Many, many things. We can buy someone a meal from time to time. There's always that opportunity. We can give someone food. Um, I've done that and sometimes been turned down. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) We can donate to um, groups that are working, and there are many groups right now working to end homelessness. San Francisco is working very, very hard. I heard Ed Lee, their mayor, the other day on the radio, and they're um, working on a three, three or 30, I'm not sure, <laughs> million, maybe $30 million program in three years to end homelessness in San Francisco. Wouldn't that be wonderful? San Jose has many programs going. Again, the mayor is very much behind solving this homeless crisis. There's a program I just donated this afternoon. Um, there's a group that has a program has a, a mobile van that goes around to homeless encampments, and they give out tarps and sleeping bags and jackets and etc. And in the van, they have a shower. And so people can come in and shower and get cleaned up. Um, I don't remember if they have food or not, but, you know. So they go out to the homeless and offer these things. It's a wonderful wonderful offering, wonderful program. So there are so many things that we can do. And like the starfish, you know, maybe it doesn't end homelessness, but this one person gets a meal, (laughs) or this person gets a shower, or this person knows that somebody cares. So again, we can hold the big picture, and do what's right in front of us. I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, uh, BGR, Buddhist Global Relief. This is uh, a charity that Bhikkhu Bodhi began, um, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago. Bhikkhu Bodhi is the foremost translator of... of, um, of our texts, the discourses. And BGR is growing. They started with food insufficiency, you know, poverty, hunger. And they are developing more and more programs all over the world, including here. And they follow the idea you know, in in Christianity, is talked about you teach a man, you give a man fish, you feed him for a day, you teach him to fish, and you feed him for life. So this is very much what BGR does. They do give food, but they also help. They partner with organizations in other countries to help 
farming, agriculture, um, helping the people to be able to become sustainable, to be able to provide their own food. And in the meantime, they give food to them. It's a wonderful, a wonderful organization. And every year, their big fundraiser is a walk to feed the hungry. So there's usually one in San Francisco and one in San Jose in October. And a bunch of us, 100 or so people, walk with our signs, walk to feed the hungry, and uh, raise money for BGR. They started the first year with one walk in New York City in uh, Central Park. And then the next year, there was one in San Francisco and San Jose, and now there are several cities um, where there are walks. So again, there are many opportunities to do something about what might seem like an overwhelming or an intractable problem. Uh, animals are a big concern for me. And as you probably know, animals all over the world are oftentimes incredibly mistreated. There's the ivory trade, so elephants are killed for the ivory. Uh, and then sometimes the rest of the carcass is just thrown aside. Um, there's the fur trade, so animals are killed for their fur. There's the exotic animal trade. Uh, animals are used for testing. Uh, incredibly horrible things are done to some animals just to see what effect something will have on them. <coughs> um, fish are fished to extinction. Uh, whales are killed for their whatever, blubber or whatever else, seals. I mean, it's, it's incredible when we learn about all that is going on. And so, again, it can see, seem overwhelming. What can I do? Well, again, there are many things. One is to become vegetarian, but not everybody's going to do that. But we can become aware of where our food comes from. Not just the store, but where and how were those animals raised that, uh, that we are eating? And were they raised with compassion and kindness, or were they not? We can do our best to buy products or buy uh, meat from, from uh, stores or farmers that use kindness, that use um, respectful, <laughs> non-harming. Well, it's hard to say non-harming uh, because they're being killed, but they can be killed in a kind way. They can be killed in a humane way rather than some of the horrendous uh, slaughterhouse practices that are done. 
so I said, you know, animals are a, a big concern for me. And one of the things I do very locally, very personally, is adopt. You know, I, I always have a dog and a cat, almost always, and I adopt them. And I generally, these days, adopt older animals. I'm, I'm not up for kitten and puppy energy, so <laughs> I like to adopt older dogs and cats, which is helpful because they're often harder to, uh, for people to adopt. People want the young ones. They don't want the older ones. I have found it wonderful. I have had three wonderful dogs that were all um, at least four years or more. My last one was nine years old when I adopted her. Um, Just recently, I fostered a (laughs) 20-year-old Maine Coon cat. Maine Coons, if you know, are huge cats. This poor cat, when I got him, was so small. He was just skin and bones, practically. And I only had him three weeks. He died yesterday. Um, But at least he died at home, in my home, instead of in a cage at the shelter. I had learned about him through a friend and decided to, you know, bring him home with me. And he was really no trouble at all. He slept most of the time, ate when I fed him, and then went back to sleep. (laughs) But in three weeks, we really bonded. So he knew my voice, he knew my touch, my smell, you know. And um, it was you know, a very, a very short time, but a very wonderful time. Something I can feel good about, and I think it was, I think it was good for him. So, remembering that we are a global community. In this day and age with communication and travel and etc., We are no longer separate from people on the other side of the world. What we do affects other people all around the globe. What other people do affects us. It's like the butterfly story, right? The butterfly shakes his wings and there's uh, a reaction on the other side of the world. Um, So I think it's important that we remember that that our actions affect more than just us or more than just our small community. They can have broad-reaching, far-reaching effects, sometimes that we don't realize. I'm reminded of Chernobyl. Remember in the 80s when Chernobyl uh, in Ukraine, uh, a horrible nuclear disaster. And I believe, I know there was a a cloud that traveled to the Scandinavian countries, and I believe there was even something that washed up on shore here 
I can't remember the exact, but it seems like there was evidence that that washed up even in the United States, you know, clear across the world. So everything, <laughs> everything practically that we do, not practically everything that we do, has a broadening effect. We don't live in isolation. And we can't just act as if, you know, it doesn't matter. As uh, Ruth Dennison, uh, a Vipassana teacher, said, you know, karma means you don't get away with nothing. (laughs) And I think as a global community, that's really true. We don't get away with nothing. (laughs) We can't do harmful things and not have them affect others. They will. So Sharon Salzberg talks about developing a heart as big as the world. And the Buddha suggested, tending ourselves, we tend the world. Tending the world, we tend ourselves. So taking care of ourselves, we help take care of the world. And when we reach out to take care of the world, we take care of ourselves. So we practice. We practice to develop an open heart. We practice to quiet our mind. Jack Cornfield says, quieting the mind is a political act. <laughs> so we see things more clearly. We see things as they are. Not as we'd like them to be or we think they should be. Not through our stories or our ideas about things, but things just as they are. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh says, when there's peace in ourselves, there's peace in the world. So we develop a peaceful heart, a peaceful attitude, and that shares peace throughout the world. We practice the precepts to the best of our ability. Of course we break them. That's a given. But we practice to the best of our ability. Non-harming. Non-harming to ourselves. Non-harming to others. And we develop the qualities of kindness and gratitude and generosity and forgiveness and all the qualities that we talk about. Uh, You may have seen this book, Bringing Home the Dharma, by Jack Kornfield. In many ways, it's the idea that the Dharma isn't out there somewhere. The Dharma is right here in front of us. And we can make our lives a practice of the Dharma. So that, again, everything that we do is practicing the Dharma. We don't just practice on Thursday night or Sunday morning or Monday night or (laughs) whatever time we come here. But everything we do 
is done with the Dharma in mind, is done with uh, the caring, the compassion, the loving kindness that, that we practice here. So, just a couple things to end. A quote from Gandhi. He says, Those who say that spirituality has nothing to do with politics do not know what spirituality really means. And I, I think of politics in the larger sense. You know, how we govern ourselves, how we take care of ourselves. And this from Ram Dass. We don't need to wait until we are enlightened before we act in the world. And we don't need to withdraw from the world to become enlightened. Conscious social action can be our own work on ourselves that becomes the vehicle for our awakening. So even, even doing our own inner work, meditation, uh, learning, knowing ourselves, is part of what we do for the world. So, <laughs> we have a few minutes. Comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah. But but it's the attitude, you know, it's the idea it doesn't have to be yeah. every specific thing. Right. Just I just gave examples right. of the idea. Yeah, from uh, my tradition, um from the text it, um one of the lines is if you've saved one life, it's as if you saved an entire world. Right. And it was really interesting for me, um for many years I was the director of a very large senior center with hundreds of people all around me all the time. Um, it was in the city. And I felt like I needed to be in that kind of environment to be doing with all these people around and, you know, like there's so much going on and uh, affecting so much people, touching so much people by speaking to 300 people in a dining room. And um, when I left there after 18 years, I went to an agency where I was doing one-to-one. And the work was hard. It was geriatric care management. But it was really interesting to then shift over to that other place of if you help one person or what's right in front of you, it has just as much significance as doing so much for so many. It was an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then taking care of yourself before you go, you know, having the balance, the levity, all of that intact in order to go out there. But it's, there's a lot to do right now, more than I think any other time in my lifetime, except maybe during the Vietnam War. But even then it was more protesting. Now it's telephone, 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 <laughs> meeting, 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 meeting. I'm devoting my life to the resistance work and... Boy, <laughs> it's unbelievable how much there is to do. So everything you said um, just really rings true to embrace it all. 
Mm-hmm. And remember, you don't have to do it all. That is true. <laughs> that is true. And We're all in this together. Yeah, and sometimes just realizing that, reminding yourself yeah. of that is a big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just even feeling like this one call is all I could do. Mm-hmm. Whether it does have any, um, whether it does ripple or have any um, effect, I, you know, that doesn't really come into play for me. Good. Because I come to think it really doesn't <laughs> have much. It's like a little one drop of water kind of thing. But you never know. And you know the saying that that one drop of water over time fills the pail. (laughs) Or wears down the mountain, or uh, there are different ways that it's said, but that one drop at a time. It seems like nothing, but over time it fills the bucket, or it wears down the rock, or whatever. Yeah. Nothing, nothing that we do is ever lost. We may not know the ripple effect, but it's never lost. If it's, as you were saying, if it's a kindness to one person, well, that one person, or that one starfish, or that one cat, or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else? Sometimes I'll find that um, my mind, okay, is busy, and something um, I think Gil said in terms of mindfulness of breathing is that sometimes when it becomes so prominent to go to that place, to let go of your, your following your breath and just go to mm-hmm. that place mm-hmm. and maybe look at it and see what it's about. Well, tonight I was, you know, I, I was going off so much, um, more than usual. And I kind of stayed with these different um, thoughts rather than just letting them go because they seem so big. And um, when now that I've done that tonight, I don't feel the, the inner peace that I will feel when I'm just focused most, mostly on my breath. Mm. I feel kind of an agitation feeling. And so I guess what I'm asking you is, um, when do you um, go off and with the thought, not in terms of, um, I mean, just in terms of exploring a thought and thinking about it and letting it go? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the tricky part. Um, because it's not so much thinking about it as being very aware of it. And it's not about getting caught up in it, you know, following it, but just noticing what that thought is. Um, And now what you might do, you might reflect on as, as you leave, what is the agitation? What is that about? You know, it, it's nice when we meditate and we get very calm. That's lovely, but it doesn't always happen. 
Sometimes there are so many thoughts or there's so much going on that it's impossible to stay with the breath. And we may feel at the end of a meditation, that was hard work, (laughs) you know. But that hard work can pay off. Maybe not right away. You don't feel, you know, relaxed and calm right now. But over the long term, Gill uses the analogy of a rowboat on the lake and you go out and sometimes the lake is very calm and you have this lovely row. It's just very peaceful and lovely and you come back, oh, wasn't that nice? And other times you go out and the lake, it's windy, say, and the lake is very rough and you have to row so hard. (laughs) because of all the waves. And you think, wow, that wasn't so fun. But over the long haul, that may serve you better. You've worked hard, but you've built the muscle. And so when when we use the muscle of our brain to see where is the mind going, what's it doing, or what is the agitation, what, what is the heart doing, or what's happening. It may not be so calm, it may not be so fun, but you may learn something. And so in the long run, it may be just as or more beneficial. Thank you Thank for that. Yeah. Yeah, so people do need to leave. Let's stop. And if anybody has further questions,